Welcome to The Career Scoop. I'd like to welcome Marco Dwar to this episode. Marco is the CEO at Big Red Cloud and Big Red Book, the easy-to-use online accounting software for micro, small, and medium-sized businesses. Having founded his company back in 1992 and purchased the Big Red Book in 2000 with the goal of helping companies to better manage their accounts, Mark also finds time to train and compete in Ironman and triathlon events in Ireland, the UK and across Europe. Mark, it's great to have you on the, on the, the show today, this episode. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, James. Great. So just to kick off, Mark, I wonder, would you give uh, the listeners an overview of your career to date? You might uh, talk of the highs and lows, what you've learned and what you're most proud of. Okay, well, having left college, uh, James, my parents wanted me in what they thought was a permanent pensionable job. So they uh, suggested I join the bank, which we all now know wasn't necessarily permanent pensionable. And uh, so I did a nine-month stint with the bank with AIB, and the bank officials told me that if I got onto the All-Ireland AIB rugby team, they would get me in in a full-time position. So uh, we played a trial match half of Ireland, played the other half down in Toma Park in Limerick. And 10 minutes of the match, I pulled my hamstring and that was the end of my banking career. So I then explained to my parents I wanted to become a salesman, which was like uh, holding a crucifix up to uh, Dracula. And uh, they just thought, why, why, would one of our sale, why would one of our sons be a salesperson? But uh, anyway, do you know what? I got a job with Pitney Bowes and turned out to be the best thing that I ever did and actually gave, um, gave back up to what the career guidance teacher had told my mum uh, when I was in school who said my Mark's best asset was his tongue. So I ended up uh, selling very well in, in, in Pitney Bowes, selling franking machines to people who were up to that point uh, uh, using stamps uh, on their envelopes. I then got um, poached to a company that was distributing Panasonic facsimile machines at the time. Not too sure if some of your younger listeners know what a facsimile machine is, but anyway, it was back in the day when I'd ring you, James, and say, would you buy a fax? And you'd say, well, yeah, if... Uh, if Carol buys a fax, I'll buy a fax as well. And so you end up getting the sale of two, two fax machines. So then from there, I got poached to a company called Orchard Computers who were selling incomplete accounting software to accountants in practice. They, get, they promised me the sun, moon and stars in training, never gave it to me. And I ended up having to teach myself the accounting software. Luckily enough, I had a very good accounting teacher in school. So I had a good knowledge of, of accounting. Uh, bearing in mind, I did marketing in college, not, not accounting. Um, so I did very well there. And then the Panasonic company got the distribution rights for uh, laptops, Panasonic laptops and printers. So they poached me back. So we made an agreement that if, if I came back and we had a certain target, um, we'd set up a new company. And that's exactly what we did. We had 180% over target. Uh, we set up the company in the January. And uh, shortly after that, uh, Panasonic Ireland bought out uh, their joint venture partner, which was Smurfit, and took all the products back off the distributor and in particular ones that were doing really well which was ironically the computers and the printers that I was selling so I was kind of left to go either join Panasonic as product manager or to go back selling um, fax machines so I took the step to go with Panasonic worked under Japanese man called Tony Tanamoto who's great to learn from interesting culture the way they work in in uh, Japanese companies Uh, but I found it suppressed my personality James and it was really that that was the conduit to me uh, setting up my own business in 1992. Um, it kind of pushed me out into the big, bad world. It was the push that I needed. And I set up my business 
selling uh, accounting software as it happens. I, I got the agency for an Irish product. And uh, then in, in 2000, I was introduced to the owners of Big Red Book. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. Wow. And what did you take out? Because that's you got great training. Like that was kind of not door to door, but in effect, it was high pressure sales training with Pitney Bowles, I do remember. And uh, so what was the training like? And when did you realize that you were good at this? Well, actually, James, it was highly embarrassing for me at the start because in the first week I got thrown out of two places and I was nowhere near uh, lining up to hit my target. And there's no way I could go back and face my parents to say, you know, this is my chosen career. I asked to do it. So I got stood in front of the mirror and I basically told myself, looked myself in the eye and said, look, Mark, you can do this. And I basically jizzed myself up to the point that uh, within the first month, I basically did double the target that was set for me. And uh, so that was really the point that I knew that that was the career I should be on. And within the first uh, five months, I won a trip to Corfu. Uh, I was one of the top salesmen in, in uh, between Ireland and the UK. Um, so I kind of, I guess I knew then that I had hit hit my um, chosen career. But it did take a bit of pushing because I was really shocked being thrown out. I thought I was going to just breeze through this and people don't breeze through things. You got to work at them. So it's preparation, that old world preparation. Yeah, look, I listened to one of your other um, people you had on, Derek Kenny, I think it was, yeah. and he was out doing 100 calls a day. And there's all this statistics that uh, we were given in Pitney Bowes that for every 10 cold calls you do, you get one prospect. And for every 10 prospects that you do a demonstration to, you'll get one sale. And the successful salespeople were the people that could get their conversion rate from prospect to paying customer up as high as you can. So I added up around seven or eight. So it was a, I had a 70 to 80% hit rate. Yeah. I think you and Derek could get on well. I said, he said, it was 100, he'd knock on 100 doors. And then if 10 opened, he'd get one sale. And that was the metric that yeah. he... Uh, uh, got and uh, yeah, it's hardcore, James, uh, and you and you need a certain type of personality. Now, mind you, Pitney Bowes did kind of uh, play the cards in their own favour. So, on your second interview, you did a the McQuaig test personality profiler, and they knew from that personality profiling test if you had the personality to be a salesman and take rejection. Okay, so it's all about reje- embracing rejection. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. How would you define pressure and rejection? How do you define rejection, or how does a rejection come across to you? If you can articulate that, I I look at it as as an opportunity and a challenge. So you 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 get inside and you say, why is this person rejecting you? You go back and ask them the questions. What could I do better? And you say, look, can you help me? And nobody doesn't want not to help somebody. So if you go back and you say what did I do wrong? How can you help me? And then when they tell you what you did wrong, if you can then say, well, look, James, if I could actually give you that in black as opposed to red, then would you buy it off me? So James has told you that he did buy it if it was in black. So he's not going to say no. So you look at every rejection as an opportunity to either better yourself, learn from it, or turn it into positive for yourself. Yeah. And does it, does it take you long to, to go the full circle on getting there. I mean, you realized very quickly that you thought you were good at this and the results showed that you weren't good at it. And then you say, okay, I need to do something. Did you have any mentors around you as you at, at the start or maybe going through your career that kind of helped you reinforce this philosophy? Probably not. You know, I, I, you know, I would have had a sales manager at the time, but they were only interested in me hitting their target because 
if we hit our target, they got more commission. So they were kind of really self-motivated. They weren't really a mentor as such. Um, no, I, I just looked deep within myself and, you know, just challenged myself with the failures to say, let's try and turn them around to be a positive and uh, moseyed my way through through life that way, really. I haven't really had a, you know, I've had a, a great supportive wife. So she's a great sounding board to, to sound things off. Um, but at the end of the day, the results were down to me. So I had to adjust to uh, to survive. And that includes taking unfavorable feedback sometimes, or, or a lot of times, to help you make that change. Yeah, well, I think a lot of the young people nowadays are not willing to take that uh, unfavorable feedback. And I think the people that will succeed or the people who will take that unfavorable feedback, uh, listen to it, learn from it, and try and make it better. I mean, obviously, it's 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 uh, subjective when somebody tells you something. It's their opinion of you. But, you know, there's a reason they said it to you. So you really need to take it on board and take it for what, what it is and try and make the best of it. Yeah, it's very interesting. And any funny stories about early sales, sales, sales calls going wrong or clients going wrong as, uh, back in the in the early days or, or even oh, yeah, well, current days? Any any good stories that just to the learning or mistakes or, you know, those kind of things? Oops, I won't do that again. Yeah, well, I have a, uh, I have a couple, Jim. Um, so as I said, the first week I got thrown out of two places and I was literally picked up by the seat of my pants and thrown out onto the street because the uh, Pitney Bowes had sent out a letter to say that the current franking machine they were using was obsolete. And uh, so one auctioneer who will remain nameless in uh, Renla uh, just wouldn't accept this at all because the machine was working. And he literally said, you young pup, just get out of, out of my office. Um, that was one thing. Another thing, I uh, was expanding into the UK with my accounting software. And uh, I hired an Irish guy who came with a pretty good references. And after six months, he hadn't sold anything. So I flew over to London. I met him on the Uxbridge Road. Uh, he had not brought the laptop with him. He had not brought the keys to the office. We met for a cup of coffee. He had a feeling I was going to let him go. And then I did let him go. And it took me six months and a private investigator to get back the BMW that I'd given him as a company car. It was parked in a, in a forest in England somewhere. Wow. Gosh. Yeah. And so that was, that was a big lesson. <laughs> and did you revisit your, your recruitment? Uh approach when you look back what, what were there were there signals there or yeah yeah so so uh, recruitment wise uh, yeah i i take people i think derek actually said this i take people for granted in a lot of cases when they say if they can do something i, I accept that they're not lying to me um but what i learned from that because i was trying to expand a business in the uk what i learned from that is rather than employing people when i went to do it again i actually bought companies that were already set up in the uk other resellers and I expanded that way. That was when I had the uh, I had an SAP business back in 2003, and I built that to be the biggest in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And I, I built that by acquisition, not by actually employing people directly in the UK. And when you were buying companies, what did you look for? Well, that was very easy. So I looked for companies that were already resellers of SAP, already had a customer base, uh, and preferably a customer base that they'd made mistakes with, that the customers weren't happy because we are very exceptionally good at customer service. So I like to go into companies and, and they were selling because they, they couldn't work out what the customers needed. So they were ideal for me. So it, all these customers are about to leave these companies that I bought. We got in, sprinkled our little bit of magic and customer service on it. And we not only kept them, we started winning other customers because they then 
told their friends that were in business, you know, this company has now turned itself around. They've got a new owner. And uh, so that's kind of worked from, from my point of view. So, so I take it you love the challenge of trying to hold on to a client. So if it goes wrong, you go in and how do you, how do you get a client that you've kind of dropped, a, say someone else has dropped a number of balls with to get them to say, come on, we're going to look after you now. How do you, how do you make that happen? Well, first off, you've got to find out what went wrong, James. And when you've uh, ascertained exactly what's gone wrong, um, you can then go to the drawing board and put a solution to them that will work, that they'll be happy with, and that you feel you can stand over. So what about the, the initial hair dry, hair dryer reception you might get or the first couple of phone calls, like when you're thrown out of the, the office in Renla, you know that sort of people are upset, the event, Yeah. you, you just listen, listen, take it, and then Yeah, I love in. that. You know, just tr- tr- throw it all at me. I'll suck it in like a sponge. And, you know, yeah, please vent as much as you can. Get it all off your chest. We're going to make this better. How are you going to make it better? Your predecessor didn't make it better. We understand that. I can give you a, a number of customers that are with us already and have been with us for many years. And you're quite willing, uh, you're quite, quite uh, able to, to ring them, lift the phone to them and ask them, uh, did we turn around any situations that they had in the past? So you have to stand over and be confident about the service that you can provide. But at the same time, take the angst and the grief that these people had because they just want to offload and they really just want to make things better. So, you know, if you listen to them, then they, they appreciate that. Yeah, very simple on one level. We never thought that, are we? No, those kind of things aren't thought. I think they're in bread and that they're, they're in your DNA. Um, you know, like if you need to get somewhere, you got to get through the issue first, don't you? Nobody, nobody can get through the barrier. You can't get over the fence until you worked out a way to get over the fence or what the fence there in the first place for. So you need to break down the barriers, the fence, whatever it is, and uh, break it into some smaller minute particles and then get solutions that will work. And then you start rebuilding the relationship and then the relationship starts flourishing and then you start getting more business off these people. And would you find when you recapture a relationship that that relationship is maybe twice, three, four times stronger because of that journey, the trust is bigger? Yeah, if you, James, if you deliver on something that you promise, the cement uh, cement in that relationship is, they, they will not leave you because they don't want to go through it again and have a bad experience with somebody else. And if you've proven that you've worked out the solution, you've, you've, you've delivered on what you promised, they, they won't leave you. It's very simple on one level, but it's, it's, it's human nature, I suppose. When, yeah, my whole business philosophy over life has been simplicity. Yeah. The, if you weren't in the job you're in, and, I, and what, what would you be? And I, I know you're a big sports person. And uh, in the question I shared, you know, mixologist, photographer, professional golfer. And why? So what, 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 if, you, if you could say, here's the dream job for Mark, what, what might you be? If you had to go again. Well, back in the day when, well, back in the day, James, when you and I played rugby, there wasn't such a thing as being a professional rugby player. But I would have 100% have liked to have either been a professional rugby player or a professional athlete of some sort, maybe a triathlete, an Ironman. Um, but more recently, in fact, just in the last few days, I've had some tree surgeons in. <laughs> I have to say, I'd love to be 
donning a chainsaw and cutting a few trees down. <laughs> it's very physical work. And uh, obviously, it's not great for the planet. But if trees are, you know, falling on power lines, that kind of stuff, uh, they need they need to go. But uh, I do remember cutting down a few trees 20 years ago. And the satisfaction it gives you is, is just that's really physically demanding. Uh, but I'd say really, you're realistically a, a professional rugby player. I got to play Leinster under 20s. That's about as far as my uh, career went uh, rugby wise. But you have a great success now with the, with the triathlons and Ironman. Do you want to share the listeners your, your how you got involved, your approach, and what your successes were? Um, so I got involved in triathlon because my brother was harping on, who lives in California, that these triathlons are a great thing. And I was thinking, mm, okay, we'll give them a try. So I did a relay. I put a relay team into a charity triathlon uh, down in British Bay. And being competitive, I stacked the team. So I had a pretty good swimmer, and I had the number one Irish national champion under 25 cyclist in my team. So the swimmer put us out into uh, 18th position coming out of the sea. Uh, the cyclist put me out into the run into first position. And I was 5K into the 10K run. And this guy shouts at me, Mark, I'm coming to get you. And I turn around, it was Eamon Cochran. And he sprinted past me, broke my spirit. And he told me afterwards that uh, he checked out who I was in the car park. He looked like a, he said I looked relatively strong runner. And found out what my name was and said that he decided he'd shout at me. And if he sprinted past me the way he did in the Olympics and he waved the arm, he'd break my spirit. And I said, well, it's not a bad thing coming second to an Olympic champion. <laughs> so, so that was my entry into triathlon. And that was a relay. Then I started doing the sprints. Then I did the triathlons. Then I happened to uh, finish on the podium in my age group. And I ended up uh, representing Ireland at two world championships and two European championships um, at triathlon. And uh, then my brother kept saying, this Ironman thing is great. And my wife said, hold on a second, you're tra training all the hours that God gives just to do an Olympic distance triathlon. Now you're talking about doing something that's four times the distance. So sat down, Anne's very organized, didn't know plan, and went to Austria to my first Ironman in 2012, I think it was. And uh, she loved it. We stayed in the hotel where all the professionals were staying. The exit of the swim was in the uh, back garden of the hotel and only residents were allowed in. And she just thought the whole thing, the spectacle was amazing. And uh, so I've subsequently done uh, seven Ironman now at this stage and a couple of half Ironman thrown in as well. Well, and how's the body after all that exertion? Yeah, the body does get tired, I have to say, because it is, is quite a lot. I don't know if your listeners know what an Ironman is, but it's a 3.8K swim, a 180-kilometer cycle, followed by a full marathon, 42.2-kilometer run. So the actual training required is something like 20 hours a week on top of your your work and your and your, your family life so it does it can take a toll on the body and i did uh, get struck down with shingles in 2018 and you know a lot of times they say shingles is as a result of the body and the immune system being uh, pushed to the limits is it I, I think you and derek kenny have a lot more in common because he did the Dobie, uh, the gobi desert uh, marathon uh, with about three days of training <laughs> and, yeah, and, and very little sleep, I hear. And, and got over the line. But I think that, I, I suppose, what I'm seeing is that if you set the challenge, whether that be in personal life or in work, you just keep going forward and try and achieve the challenge. Correct. Simple as that. When you recruit people, uh, what qualities do you look for? Them? I look for passion, honesty, like to see that they're hungry, motivated, and loyal. And 
how, the process you are you interviewing when you're interviewing people do you have one interview two interviews do you meet someone for a cup of coffee do you anything that's that's out of the box i'm just curious try to get a sense of somebody uh, it's not out of the box a phone call first james there's no point wasting their time there's no point wasting our time until we're going to jail and we feel that they have the key skills that we require for the for the role that's been uh, advertised. Uh, if they get through the telephone, then we'll bring them in. And uh, I tag team with my COO, um, so she she sits in on the on all the interviews. And we have a number of questions. Uh, some that she'll ask, some that I'll ask. Uh, some are probing about their uh, previous um, successes, uh, their previous failures, how they deal with those failures. Um, what's been their career highlights, uh, where they like to see themselves in, in five years' time, the usual kind of stuff. Um, but I, I do feel that having um, um, a female uh, colleague in in the interview uh, gives you a better uh, intuitive uh, side because I, I do feel, with all due respects and not being sex, I do think females are far, have far more um, in, intuitive uh, nature and they will read a person better and, you know, I'll, as I said earlier on, I take people for their word and uh, females are always a little bit more sceptical, I think, and they'll dive a little bit deeper. And I do think a tag team of a male, female in an interview process has worked. It certainly worked for, for us. That's interesting. Next question, networking. When I say the, the sorry, James, it's just to, on the hunger, the hunger, I love to see somebody who uh, wants to go and buy a house, get a mortgage, have kids. You know, whatever the case may be, because certainly when it's in sales, uh, you now then know that they're 100% motivated because they need to earn the money to give them the life that they want. So the goal is there, they're focused. Yeah. Very, very, very simple. Just networking. Tell me, I mean, I, 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 I've known you for a, quite a number of years. I think you're a brilliant networker and obviously you're a sales guy originally and always a sales guy. You never change. Did you... Did you consider this networking is this new word we hear about? So what was networking back when you kind of came off the production line from school or and and uh, out into in, into the into the working world? What what did you did you have a concept of how to do it? Or I, I I think anybody that's involved in team sports is a natural networker. They're you know to to be uh, in a in a sport like rugby. Um, the 15 guys, the, the, the winning the game isn't dependent on the on the on the out half kicking the the, uh, the penalties or the or the conversions. It's it's a 15 man game, and so you, you 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 tend to understand people a lot better when you've come from a team environment. So whether that's hockey, soccer, Gaelic, rugby, whatever it is, it it, it sets you on the path to being able to understand people and work with people, and that's what the first thing about networking is. So the, 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 my, my first thing to, when I set up the business was literally going in every evening after work when I set up my business and putting flyers into the doors in Fitzwilliam Square and the offices and Marion Square, offering a free Panasonic TV with every fax machine somebody bought. So people couldn't understand that. Well, you're, you're not making much margin, no, but the paper and the ink consumables that you're going to get thereafter was going to be a recurring business. And so it was worth giving away the free TV at the time. So you, you start networking through business. Then you, you start joining a business network like Dublin Chamber, maybe B&I, and uh, sports clubs. If you're in a sports club thereafter, I'm a firm believer in not necessarily talking about business in the club, 
but by virtue of the fact that you're changing beside somebody in a club, they'll ask you what you do, they'll make a mental note of it. And then if you are in a service industry and are looking for that service in the future, they're going to say, oh yeah, geez, I was changing beside Mark. Yeah, he's in that industry, must give him a call. So it's kind of a, it's a natural flow and don't be afraid to uh, be selling all the time. I've all ABS and it's not a, a set of brakes on a car. It's always be selling. ABS, I like that. Actually, that the, the young listeners should, not even the young, the, all the listeners, ABS is a nice, and, and selling brand you and what you represent and, and that's by fronting up and yeah. being there. How about now? And people, oh, James, people will, people, sorry, people will, will appreciate you remember their name. So that was a key thing to networking that I remember faces and I remember names. And I'm, I could be down in the darkest, dreariest county in Wicklow or Wexford or wherever it is on my bike with my friend, having a stop for a cup of coffee and I'll meet somebody I know. And he'll say, hey, like, how do you know these people? And on a per capita basis, he's a surgeon. He probably sees more people than I do. But because it's a different environment, I'm business. And I, every time I look at somebody, I see them as business. Whereas when he, somebody comes into him, it's somebody he's just got to fix the issue with and then they're gone again. But in business, you have a recurring relationship with these people because it's not you just don't want a once-off sale. You want to be able to go back to them and get more business out of them. And so that's where you you know, develop that business relationship. But also they become personal relationships, I presume. The friendships evolve out of, out of some of those yes. relationships they kind of flip across uh, which is which is interesting. what about Correct. now i mean now that we're in the middle of covid for well we're not in the middle of it we're well hopefully we're in the we're near the end of it how how are you adjusting yeah. to the new well sorry using new medium to sell or build relationships have you any thoughts or comments uh, around that you can't meet people so you can't see the whites of the eyeballs of somebody and no uh, but there's lots of networking groups going on 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 zoom and teams and uh, they, they are way to meet, ways to meet new people. I've got this uh, company in the UK that uh, have put together a network of providers of software and services to accountants in the UK. And so they had 164 people on a call there before Christmas. And the way they did it in order that you would get to know people is they had breakout rooms every 10 minutes. So you'd break out into four or five people because you're not going to get to know 168 people. It's impossible, no matter how good a networker you are. And no matter what you say, whether it's funny, it's it's not everybody's going to be listed at the same time. So by breaking into those smaller little groups, you have a better chance of doing a one-to-one with two to three people, explaining what you do, do a little bit of speed dating, uh, business business dating, really. And uh, and in that way, you start they start to understand what your business is and you start understanding what their business is, and it's no different than meeting face to face. You're just not physically in front of the person, so that's that's one way. Um, you know, all our staff are working from home, bar two, because their broadband's not good enough at home, and our relationship with our account accountants and our customers has been stronger than ever. It's, it hasn't waned, and um, we've looked after customers that have, have have had to work from home by giving some of them free licenses for their the desktop product, Big Red Book that we use, um, the Big Red Cloud. It's a digital product. So COVID has really played into our hands, James. So uh, we've a lot more people moving over to our digital accounting product, Big Red Cloud, than we had before because you can work from anywhere once you've got uh, a browser. As I said, uh, my company uses, uses the product, so we're very, very happy with it. Uh, and and uh, I know you gave me a couple of couple of couple of uh, water bottles, cycling water bottles, and so that's the, the the free plug, as they say. 
But uh, going back to thank you, James. Uh, going back to uh, uh, as you know, I was I was a referee, a very good referee, a rugby referee. I would say myself. Other people might disagree. You were sponsor of the referees in the uh, um, uh, Premier, not the Premiership in the what was it, the European. You pro the Pro Fourteen. The Pro Fourteen. T- tell me about that journey and how that happened, and 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 what did you get at? What did you get from it? I'm curious about the impact because I think it was a super idea. So with a background in rugby, uh, having played it like yourself, I do uh, watch a lot of rugby. And I was sitting on my sofa one day and I was looking at the Pro 14 and I just looked at the back of the referee's jersey and I said, there's a blank canvas. The camera zooms in on the back of the jersey of the referee when the teams are scrumming down and there was nothing on it. So I approached the commercial director of the Pro 14 and uh, went in and I said, listen, you know, I want to I advertise here. So they put a package to me and I agreed to it. And, uh, you know, that came with a lot of free tickets uh, for all the matches, uh, no matter where they were. And obviously it's been played in South Africa now as well. Uh, what it did for our company is it got us huge brand awareness in, it's televised to 140 countries. People don't know that. Um, the viewership is huge, it's in the millions. Um, so you're not just talking about being on the jersey, in the ground for just the spectators. You're getting all the coverage that you get on the TV when it's live, on the reruns, on some of the edits, um, on all the uh, interview boards, your logos in the background. Um, so there's, there's a huge amount of stuff you get, but there, there's a lot of work you got to do yourself to make sure that the money you're spending with people like that, that you're, you're getting longevity out of it and you're getting your bang for your buck. So there's an awful lot of social media that needs to go on. So I'd sit there every weekend watching every match and any time our logo came up in a unique or different way, I would tweet it out. I'd get it on LinkedIn. I'd have it on um, Facebook. I'd have it on Instagram, whatever, every opportunity to repost it. And then we engage with the referees to give it kind of their backstory because a lot of referees are, you know, you either love your referee or you hate your referee, depending on what team you're on. And some weeks you'll love them and the next week you'll hate them. Uh, uh, depend on their decisions. So I gave backstories to um, some of the referees because they're human beings at the end of the day and they have lives and they weren't really profiled before. So we brought their profiles to the fore. We did uh, uh, you know series on that and uh, and that you know that worked really well. So it was all brand awareness, James, and uh, it just meant that when we were trying to break down the door of maybe one of the bigger accountancy firms to get them to take on bigger cloud that somewhere in their subconscious, they'll have seen the Big Red Cloud logo before, and then they associate it with Pro 14. It's the Guinness Pro 14, so it's massive companies, and now you have this Irish small business associated with these massive big companies, televised to 140 countries around the world, and you're so there subliminal, they say, oh yeah, they must be a good company. Yeah, that's great. I do love the logo on the, uh, uh, on the jersey. I think it works very well. It's very clear. It comes out very well. And and if you have any spare ones, I'm probably going to an extra large now, but I may not. Uh, happy to receive one. <laughs> you may not have extra larges for the pro for the pro referees in the sense, you know. Yeah, uh, I don't know any. I don't need extra large pro referees now. <laughs> uh, well, there was back in the day. Um, uh, two, two two questions to, to to close off. Mistakes, business mistakes. I know we talked about. It. I'm just curious. Is there anything you say? Gosh, I'll never do that again. I'm just curious. Just anything. Uh, let's just say you learn from so, and it could be funny. It can be most of these can be funny. I was sharing with somebody on, on, on a previous podcast. I had a Japanese customer 
and I was going to meet him for the first time. And I was prepped, you know, having worked with the Japanese protocol of giving business cards and it's really, really important. So I've been schooled in how I do this and really important to get a look at the card, pass it across, you put it past your business card across. So th this guy was a very, uh, he was CEO of Oryx Worldwide. So this guy was a huge Kukuchi-san. I came in, he came in, gave me the card. I looked at it, did all the right things, popped it my then into my into my jacket, popped back my card, and to my consternation, I gave him a dart card, uh, which was inside my and I didn't know what to do, but I just saw a flicker of smile in his eyes because he kind of realized very quickly. I said, I'm terribly sorry, Kikuchi said, kind of not grabbed it, took it back very gently and came out with my card. Uh, and and uh, but for whatever worked, whatever way I handled it, uh, we got the business. But I still have cold sweats thinking of that one, you know. Uh, well, a few, like a few funny things. We tried to list the company on the stock exchange. And uh, when we were doing the roadshow, we got invited to a, a pretty high profile investor's um, apartment in Mayfair. And uh, there was Burberry carpet halfway up on the lift. Uh, we were served breakfast by his maid. And uh, there was a 26 page presentation of which I presented 20 uh 22 of the pages and my finance director presented four and uh so we're sitting there they're all crunching toast i'm doing the majority of all the work and we come out afterwards and my finance director says did you see the artwork on the walls i said are you having a are you serious <laughs> i was i was working while you were crunching toast and admiring the artwork so um anyway that guy put in a million to the to the offer as it happens um then three other things when i was developing so, so developing the Big Red Cloud business, uh, you asked, was there any mistakes we made? We initially went to a company that had code conversion software that were going to be able to convert my Big Red book company software to work in the cloud. And uh, we paid them on a monthly basis. Uh, it was a fixed price contract. And after 10 months, uh, they kept showing us all the updates as we went along. After 10 months, uh, it turns out that they had gone bust. And what they were showing us on the screen was just screenshots. It wasn't actually the software at all. So they completely fooled us. So what I learned from that, uh, the flip side is to do it ourselves. So we subsequently went about developing and rewriting the cloud from scratch um, back in 2010. Um, uh, another one was I mentioned I built that SAP business to be the biggest in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And while that was a positive, um, it, it might have been a mistake to the uh, to the to Big Red Book, that if I had given the same four-year commitment to the product that I own myself, Big Red Book and Big Red Cloud would be a lot bigger now than they were at the time. But I guess I went off on an ego thing there, where SAP were the third largest software company in the world, and I wanted to be the biggest reseller, and I achieved that. But at what cost? Interesting. Like, I did sell the business, and I did well out of it, don't get me wrong, and I sold it on the 28th of February, 2008, just before the recession. Uh, my sales manager bought the business off me, took 150 SAP sites around Europe off my hands and 22 staff and paid me cash. And that was luck. But, you know, I do think that there was a cost to the Big Red Book for myself, my business partner, taking a secondment out of Big Red Book to, to, to run that business. So there are a couple of mistakes. And so there were positive things at the time. They seemed to be, but they, uh, yeah, I mean, they, you know, I got paid for it. So it, well, it so did good. all right, but... Yeah. But, but it's interesting sometimes, uh, you know, you can go a direction when you look back and say, why did I do that? But it can work out the right way. So, 
you know, it's, it swings around about, so particularly when you're, 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 you're the owner and you eat, drink and sleep the business and it keeps you awake at night. So that's passion as well. And that's problem solving. So I, I could, I could understand. Yeah, but James, James, you've got to be able to bounce back from them. It's all very well having the passion being, and, you know, and being able to problem solve, but you have to take the hits. I have had so many rounds of Mike Tyson in the 28 years I've been in business. It's not even funny. And you just keep getting knocked down. And you, if you want to stay in business, you've got to get back up again. So you do need to be able to bounce back. No, I, 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 and, and absolutely, because if you don't, nobody else will bounce back for you, as I said. Last question, five words to describe your career. Accidental, unplanned, focused, enjoyable, and challenging. Thank you for listening to The Career Scoop, brought to you by Elevate Career Advice and Elevate Executive Selection, Dublin and Bermuda. I'm James Fitzsimons, and I hope you've enjoyed listening. Tune in next week for another episode. Hope to see you there. Bye.